having a beer after a hard day's work once meant putting up with a six o'clock swill. The swill is not only unpleasant, it's also dangerous. Those who like beer, and surprisingly it's still legal to like it. South Australia joins all other states in abandoning the six o'clock swill. This is the six o'clock swill, a rock of stability on which to hook and anchor in the tempestuous times through which we live. Tim Blair joins me from his damp and windy hideout in a country town, the name of which we are withholding to protect the reputation of other residents. I'm Nick Cater, <laughs> convener of this podcast, broadcasting today from a cold and miserable Melbourne as the city prepares for the laughably called Spring Racing Carnival. Tim, I'm constantly uh, forced to remind you, of course, on this program not to confuse weather with climate, but I tell you, it's tempting, isn't it, on a day like today? Yes, we need global warming, man. Hasten the warming. Kel's joining us today, Kel Richards. Kel, welcome to the Swill once again. G'day, g'day, g'day. It looks a little bit warmer there in Sydney. You're right about Melbourne. Melbourne is exactly what Barry Humphrey said about it years ago. He said, the only good thing about Melbourne is it's so conveniently located. You can hop on an aeroplane and in an hour be somewhere interesting. <laughs> yes, it's a great thing. I also loved Barry Humphrey's assessment of Adelaide because when he'd do a tour in Australia, day bed to tour or something, he would always put the show on first in Adelaide. And Adelaide took this as a great compliment. We're the first in Australia every time to get the latest Barry Humphreys stage spectacular. But they were offended when he eventually revealed why Adelaide was always the first. It was so he could get all the bad jokes out the way and worked out what actually a good show was. <laughs> he was using them as test dummies. And, and then he'd take a, the polished version to the rest of the nation, which I thought was very cleverly done. Oh, he clever man. I remember seeing a show once and very high up, 20 feet away from anything on one of the, the walls was a phone. And five minutes before the show rang, started, it rang and rang and rang and rang and then stopped. And in the middle of the performance, <laughs> time, just said, oh, that was the phone where you tried to make the booking for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> he could be brilliantly cruel to late arrivals too. We have a strong fidelity to the facts on this podcast, Tim, which is why yes. you might have noticed I no longer describe it as a weekly podcast is more of an aspirational target yes weekly is our aspirational target to be met once you and i have retired from our day jobs and have all the time in the world to sit about grumbling into our schooners what have you been up to tim in the two weeks since we've been uh, taking a break i enjoyed the budget and uh, i realized that i've broken your fidelity vow about truth there <laughs> and uh, <laughs> no I, I always enjoy the budget because it gives me a chance to meet all the staff at the Daily Telegraph because I don't obviously being a remote worker I don't get the chance to enjoy their company a great deal so that's always good but there's also the budget and I think we should address some of the language used in the you only you only hear these sort of terms come around at budget time Kel you're the word guy tranche is off I didn't see tranche much in this budget but that's a common one yep and what was another one you mentioned when we were just uh, chatting off air what was the thing about forward estimates? That's always a good one, the isn't it? The forward estimates period, yes. Yes. 
the modeling mm. the modeling they do is always wrong mm. because as a basic principle mathematical modeling is always wrong it is always wrong <laughs> and uh, let me very quickly tell you a story that shows you how accurate mathematical modeling is in the 1890s new yorkers worried about their rapid growth of population and the number mm -hmm. of horses because horse-drawn traffic was the only traffic they had that's right and they were and the amount of basically horse poo that had to be cleaned off the streets every day it's much the same now kel by the way oh, right. except it's not horses <laughs> yes. anyway professor of mathematics in new york uh, nyu uh, did some calculations he did mathematical modeling and he explained that uh, they'd have to ban horses because by 1929 uh, the the city would be 50 feet deep <laughs> in horse poo right yes now, th that's what the modeling does Strangely, it didn't happen because he didn't take it into account the opening of the subway or the invention of the motor car. Modelling is always wrong. A couple of intervening events would have changed things. That's why I always love about our climate friends who talk about events happening. They've become more intelligent after early predictions of disaster by the 1970s or by the turn of the century or by 2010. They now throw their forecasts of doom well past most people's lifespans. Treasury announced this time that the inflation rate would peak at 7.7% this year. And then the very following day, the Australian Bureau of Statistics came out and said it was already 8.3%. So the modelling didn't last <laughs> 24 hours in that case. The other one, of course, is Labor's modelling they did for their Powering Australia plan. They did what they said at the time was the most comprehensive modelling ever done by any opposition in this country, and it came up with that magic figure. Mm. $275 would be the figure that they'd knock off the average electricity bill in three years' time, and then 385 by 2030. Well, this week, of course, Treasury announced that the electricity prices will be going up 56% in the next year, so we'll be lucky to get away with an increase of anything less than 1000 so that modelling proved out to be disastrously wrong, of course, but still no apology, no, not even an admission from the government, from the tr Prime Minister or his Energy Minister, that perhaps they got it wrong. Yeah, mm. but we should have learned this from COVID. Mm. COVID started off with every ICU bed in Australia will be filled within three months. Yep. We won't have enough ICU beds. 110,000 people will die. So we know modelling is always disastrously wrong. Why have we not picked that up from COVID and carried it into the climate and the economy and everything else? When we hear about modelling, it should actually have the names of the people involved so we can say, oh, no, it's Jerry again. He's a... <laughs> <laughs> he was way out wrong before when he took, uh, with the Asian financial meltdown. He screwed that up. Yes. We, we should have IDs on it. So then it's not just got some sort of title of like a think tank or whatever or, or treasury for that matter. Yeah. And we should, we should go for individual people so we can get a reputational record on them. Now, just talking of modelling and getting things wrong, no one really foresaw because they didn't imagine Russian gas would end anytime soon. No one really foresaw the disasters now hitting Europe in terms of their economies and especially power prices. Now, some wily character on Twitter, Nathan Wooster, I believe his name is, he's identified a positive in, in the disasters hitting Europe, especially Germany, where forests are now having to be protected by GPS monitors and, for all I know, explosives and cannons because people are stealing the wood to use as fuel. 
Anyway, this Nathan chap says, on the plus side, we might get a new generation of Brothers Grimm-style pre-industrial German fairy tales. And he has two suggested titles. The Wood Thief versus the Rewilded Wolf. (laughs) (laughs) Already for me, this one's demanding a sequel. The Boy Who Breathed Dung. (laughs) Which just is perfect. Now... What era were the Brothers Grimm? When were they? When were they at their peak, Cole? What's, what's the background on them, just to give us an historical okay. perspective? Very quickly, early 1800s, Jakob and his younger brother, Wilhelm, uh, were the mm-hmm. Grimm brothers. They were mainly linguists, but they, were, they collected the folk tales to discover how people used language and, okay. and invented this important linguistic law called Grimm's Law, explaining how sounds change over time. They would like those stories. Oh, really? Yes, yes. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, that that was, yeah, they weren't just coming up with fairy tales just as a way to amuse children. It was, uh, oh. I guess, a, la- a language as a, a living history or whatever the phrase they use. Uh, mind you, I have to say, as the, as the folk tales they collected were published, they suddenly discovered there was money in it. <laughs> More money than in, in linguistics. So they did end up pursuing it vigorously. The European types, especially the Scandinavians, have so much darker fairy tale traditions than ours. Like, I'm just looking up now. Oh, this is my favourite. Krampus. Do you know of Krampus at all? No, no, don't know Krampus. He was a freaking monster. He was the worst guy. We have Santa Claus, and in Central and Eastern Alpine folklore, they have Krampus. Now, Santa, he will give gifts to children who are good, but if you're bad, the worst you'll get is ignored. Krampus steps it up a notch. Krampus, yes, will bestow some pleasantries upon the children who are good. But if he detects any badness in the previous 12 months, Krampus will whip you with a a birch rod. (laughs) He's actually a figure of terror. I think uh, St. Nicholas and Krampus uh, used to, they, they used to it's, double team. That's why there's not a jolly song called Krampus is coming to town. You better not laugh. <laughs> <laughs> right. can, can I just say, in the Netherlands, uh, Santa Claus is a bit different. If you've been bad, mm. uh, instead of getting a gift in your stocking, you get a lump of coal. That's a traditional one, yes. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, can you imagine how much you'd enjoy that these days? Yeah, that would be the most expensive present you could buy, kid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Talking of matters, Grimm, spare a thought for the hard-working people at Twitter who've faced yep. the sight of Elon Musk walking in their building this week, sacking the general manager, sacking the CEO, and now they feel their jobs are at risk. I don't know if you heard this, yes. saw this video. If we want to know whether work at a, at how much productive work is done at Twitter, this video by an enthusiastic young employee gives us an idea. Have a listen. Welcome to a day in my life as a Twitter employee. So this past week went to SF for the first time at a Twitter office, badged in. Honestly, took a moment to just soak everything in. What a blessing. Also started my morning off with an iced matcha from the perch. Then I had a meeting, so quickly scheduled one of these little pods rooms which were so cool they're literally noise cancelling took my meeting got ready for bunch look how delicious this food looks oh my goodness i was so overwhelmed then made my way down to this log cabin area i don't know what this is but it was really cool played some foosball with my friends to kind of unwind a bit um also found this really cool meditation room 
that I thought was super neat. Um, I didn't do any yoga, but they have this yoga room if you are a yogi, so also thought that was really cool. Um, had a couple more meetings in the afternoon, had a ton of projects that we needed to knock out. Say hi to my teammates. Um, <laughs> went to the went to the library to kind of get some more work done. Obviously had to have our afternoon coffee, so made some espresso. And then before leaving for the day, had some red wine um, that's on tap went up to the rooftop and just honestly enjoyed the beautiful weather so awesome trip well there you go i mean with productivity like that i mean musk could be a, a, a nuts to sack these people <laughs> <laughs> i think she picked probably the worst time in um in history to make a video like that just as elon's walking through the door with the name of getting rid of 75 percent of the workforce i think she'd be She'd be an early trench, <laughs> wouldn't you reckon, Cal? Oh, I would think so. I was just sitting here thinking she was making the editorial decisions about what would go uh, and what would be banned. Yes. I mean, it's a bit of a worry. So I'm, she's sitting in the meditation room thinking, do I ban Donald Trump today or don't I? Oh, yes, I think <laughs> I will. I'm calmer that way. She mentioned noise cancellation at one point, and I briefly prayed and prayed for that to occur as she was talking but wouldn't you love to have her explaining why you were banned in that ridiculous up-talking sing-songy voice oh, it'd, yes it'd be like well what we've decided is that you're like a literal hitler and uh, oh my oh, uh, here comes tracy with the afternoon coffee anyway we're banning you and also we, we're calling the authorities in your sector to come and have you castrated <laughs> Oh, the voices. They, what, they all sound the same. It's one of this generation that sounded so privileged. Yes. Mm. They're entitled to all of this stuff. That It actually worries me a lot. I enjoyed how she said that she needed to unwind a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Did she strike anyone as sounding particularly stressed? Her resting heartbeat <laughs> must be one every 30 minutes. <laughs> She's so unwound, she actually needs some tension to be introduced. She needs a... A noise yep. addition device. I'm surprised that you're surprised, Kel. I mean, casting uh, your mind back good. to your days at the ABC, you were regular in that meditation room, weren't you? And and the tabletop football <laughs> and the um, red wine from the tap. That's all, I'm sure that all flows through at the. You, you are you are really bothering me here, Nick. I joined the ABC in the mid 1970s, and I I know it's hard to believe now, but it really was a different ABC. We had an induction program in those days, and the induction program said ABC staff do not express opinions. That is not our job. Mm. Our job is just to report. Yeah. That was part of the induction course in 19, 1974. I joined because. I was there when Whitlam was sacked. It was a different ABC. We think that it's a hopeless organisation now and it's easy to forget yep. that it doesn't have to be. It can be better. It once was. Very good point, Kel. It can, it can be recovered. This week, you might have seen Peter Dutton, or probably not, because I don't think many of us watch the 7.30 report anymore. Peter Dutton was interviewed. The mm. leader of the opposition was interviewed. The Liberal Conservative leader of the opposition interviewed on... Thursday night on 7.30 report by Sarah Ferguson about his budget in reply speech. Ferguson interrupted him no less than, no fewer than 23 times. Over what period of time? Over eight minutes. First interruption after just a minute. Compare that with Jim Chalmers, the Labour treasurer the other day, the man who was actually presenting the real budget. He was interrupted three times. 
I think that metric tells you something about the relative hostility towards the two parties. Do you think so, Ken, yes. or is that not significant? Oh, no. The, Should she be really... Hold, is, is, is the ABC's job now to hold the opposition to account now that the Liberal Party is in opposition? In my time there, I saw the drift. And I saw... There's a lovely expression, corporate culture, coined by an American economist in the early 1970s. Mm. It's never written down anywhere. It doesn't exist in any yep. of the plans or any of the program guides. It's just something which is caught and absorbed in the atmosphere. And that corporate mm. culture is what I saw change. And it became... It, the first time I noticed it was when I realised it was impossible to say anything against gay marriage mm. because that was just so normal and just so proper that mm. even to want to discuss it meant that you were a horrible inhumane person and more and more areas have been populated by this corporate culture which is which is actually not labor mm. it's actually green they're well to the left of mm. labor i think so they keep pushing labor in all of the wrong directions and someone said to me what is the answer to the abc and like everyone else i really don't know except that at the in the end it has got to have something to do with funding you cannot have an organization operating like that which mm. is paid for by taxpayers they, they they need to be held to account to say okay you're getting money from 26 million australians show us how you're servicing mm. all of those people and they can't show you how they're servicing all those people because fewer and fewer are watching or listening or whatever oh the abc is servicing us kel they're service, servicing us good and hard Yes, in the same way the bull they, They're right the on the front exactly. end of this. Yes. Outcomes. They're right on the front end of this woke stuff, aren't they? Have you noticed that they've uh, they now have started yeah. to uh, name cities, uh, give them the Aboriginal well, name as well? So you had a woman out last week. I'm reporting from Nipaluna, Hobart. Uh, uh, Nipaluna. I'd never heard that word before, but this is now standard practice on the ABC. It's just crept in, and we don't we no longer hear Aboriginal people not even indigenous now it's sounds First like a, Nations. sounds yeah. like a japanese pop star nipaluna yeah. yes yeah. and they are paying money to a consultancy which is called the new south wales aids yep. council the aids council of new south wales because aids is gone the council did not dissolve which should have happened instead of that it's just gone on and found different things to do with its funding and it now mainly advises people on how to be nice to the 0.0001 percent of the population who are trans that's what it's made so it runs educational courses and it picks people up on using the wrong pronouns and that kind of thing. And the ABC pays their money in order to be consulted by them. And this AIDS Council of New South Wales, which should be abolished because AIDS is no longer around, we don't need them anymore. They get, I think the figure, this is from memory, the figure is $13 million of taxpayers' money to do what they're doing. Now, why the ABC would want to be on side with them or want to have them audit their programs and tell them what they're getting right and what they're getting wrong and what language they're allowed to use is beyond me. I cannot understand why they would think that's worthwhile. It's a very easy arrangement, though. There's the, there's a certain synergy at work there, Kel, because at least one ABC staffer or a person who's oftentimes paid by the ABC is also a member of the... Um, the New South Wales AIDS Council. That works well, doesn't it? Speaking yep. of our friends in the trans community, hi everybody. Pronouns, <laughs> make your own up. Here is a person called Dylan Mulvaney, who back in March or so decided he'd had enough of this being a bloke caper and he was going to give being a girl a go. So that's 200 odd days ago. And uh, this is Dylan on what he, he she describes as day 75 of girlhood. 
I'll just play you. Think that voice we heard before was annoying? Run for your lives, kids. Let's go. Day 75 of being a girl, and I've been carrying around tampons and pads for the past two months, but I've actually never opened one up. So let's do it. Woohoo! I thought the letter stood for small, medium, and large based on the size of your Barbie pouch, but after a Google, I found out it's actually the level of your flow. So they're super, regular, and light. I guess my question is which one do I carry around? The super? Because maybe if you have a light flow, you can still use a super? I don't know. Now that I think about it, I probably should have had a woman come teach me about these things. I was on the boys' side of sex ed, and now I would like to take the girls' class. Uh, but if you're on your period right now, I'm sending you love. There you go. Barbie pouch. Gentlemen. He hasn't actually got a Barbie pouch, I take it, but he, he'd like to have one. Is that right? Barbie pouch. What we have here is a man, bio biologically male, biological male, wearing a dress, has not had any trans surgery at this point and I'm not aware of any other surgical alterations who for some reason is carrying around feminine hygiene products now <laughs> I can't imagine that Dylan Mulvaney 25 year old biological male has any practical use for them beyond discussing them on TikTok and not knowing anything about what they apparently do and how they're labelled. But this chap or chapette is considered such an exemplar, such a such an indicator, such a of the trans movement, that Dylan was invited to the White House to personally interview the President of the United States about these important issues. That person was invited to the White House. Oh, I know that. And was taken seriously. That's right. There was a news story that came out of it when Biden promised that he was going to back mm. trans people yes. taking part in women's sports, thereby guaranteeing that women's sport would cease to exist because people with XY chromosomes would win everything. Any strength sport, yes, any reflex sport, just yeah, it. It's, and it's not a measure of better. It's just a, a measure of fact. I have no experience of being a woman. I have no experience of being a woman whatsoever. I should say that up front. Well, I'm glad you cleared that up. But I, but I sort of see how women feel when they see this kind of stuff, right? They're the real women have to go through this real business of menstruation. And you've got some kid there who just thinks the whole thing's just to be played with. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember who came up with the line, but it, was, it struck me as being accurate or effective that this is a form of blackface. It's woman face. Yep, yep. So if people of colour are offended, rightfully, by someone wearing blackface, imagine how a woman's feeling when they see some bloke getting around basically cosplaying a female stereotype. Mm. Ridiculous. How do people stand up for this? Mm. It's crazy times. Mm. Can I say I don't understand how they fit in with the alphabet soup, the LGBTQ. How does the T fit in there? because the L and the G are really mm. based on the fact that they believe that's the way they are yes. and they can't ever change. Yes. They're male and they really like having male bodies and they want to congregate with other males who have male bodies. Mm. And we're women and we want to be with women who've got female bodies and we have this yeah. nature we can't change. Where in the tea room, they're doing something else entirely. It doesn't matter what body we've got, we can change anything, we can be anything. It seems to me that whatever is philosophically holding the alphabet soup yep. together is incoherent. That's a very good point. You could say that again, Kel. I think we'd all agree on that point.
Tim, were you going to tell us about Pfizer? Yes. Pfizer. The thing, we, the thing that now makes up about three quarters of our body weight. <laughs> Depends on how seriously you take all this urging to get the boosters. Okay. I wanted to find out how things get their names. Now, the other day there was this awful report in one of the US papers that a certain county in South Carolina, authorities there had uncovered a stash of fentanyl so great that there was enough of it to kill everyone in the county. This is a bit spooky. I hope we can keep that stuff out of Australia as long as we can. But fentanyl, obviously it's a generic sounding drug name, in this case for a, one of the worst drugs I think ever thrown at us. But how do you, like, got me wondering just how these things do get their names. And it uh, turns out there's quite, quite the code. And I went to the Pfizer website, I got basically a language booster from the Pfizer website. <laughs> it starts with a compound. Like anyone or anything, drugs need labels in order to distinguish them from one another. Marie Claire Peekman, Executive Director of the Primary Pharma Pharmacological Group in Worldwide Research and Development of Pfizer, explains that in the early days, chemists register a newly synthesised compound in a database, labelling it with PF, which stands for Pfizer, followed by 10 numbers. When the chemists first make up the compound, she said, they have to register in the database as soon as they're identified so that we can identify them and keep track of their performance in our studies, says Peekman. If a compound has enough promise to make it through early experiments, two naming processes begin to devise a generic name and a brand name for the future drug. So it goes through quite a process. It takes several years. There's a formula, there's a suffix, the family name, which imparts an important piece of information to healthcare professionals about how the substance works in the body. There's a suffix which explains the way it works. And there's then things with the prefix rather get a little more creative. One of the Pfizer execs says, we look for syllables that are obviously different from other existing generic names that are pleasant enough in their tonality or appearance so it doesn't become overly complex to try to pronounce the generic name. Which is news to me because a lot of those names are too damn complicated to pronounce. The doctors are now required to put the chemical names on our scripts, which means that it's just really confusing. Instead of getting so you can't use like the short, mm. sharp brand name, you get the long, confusing... The singular that was good for the asthma is now Montecloustor, Emprendezol. <laughs> Years ago, when I had, had a, an enlarged prostate, the, the brand name was Flow. I knew what that was. I knew what it did. This is unfair <laughs> to old people, isn't it? It must be, Cal. None of us, obviously, are in that category. But old people take a lot of drugs, and they've yeah. got the poorest memories, and they're being asked to learn these ridiculously long names. And don't even start on the pronouns. What are the pronouns for these drugs? We've got to know those as well. <laughs> what do they identify as? In, in the other rules of, of drug naming, the drugs must avoid certain letters. The generic drug name is created using the Roman alphabet, and the goal is to create a name that can be communicated globally. Because the letters Y, H, K, and J, and W aren't used in certain languages that use the Roman alphabet, they aren't used in the creation of the prefix of the drug's name. So if there's, there would be no yeah. Keloprene, for example... I'm sorry, Kel. So you could invent a great drug that fixes, say, Joe Biden. Everything about Joe Biden, it fixes him. And you can't name it with your the initial from your first name. Mm. Very, very sorry. 
Names are powerful. Our mutual friend Rowan Dean told me once years ago they were having a brainstorming session in an advertising agency and they came up with a great name for a product. It was I can't remember what the word was, a brilliant word. And then they looked around for a client mm. and they said, we've got this name. Can you invent a product <laughs> to go with the name? It is such a good name. There was a great case many years ago now, obviously. Remember the sailboat designer Ben Lexham? Yeah. Yes. Yep. He invented his own surname. He came up with that. He did years of searching and scanning and he composed this name that was entirely unique. Oh, that's right. And as yeah. he told the story, within two weeks of changing all of his titles and everything in, in every sort of official correspondence and officially changing his name to Ben Lexon from whatever it was beforehand, Ben Smith or whatever, he received a letter from Ireland from another Lexon going, are we related? <laughs> <laughs> he, he thought by putting an X in yeah. it'll be okay. But the same thing happened to Exxon because they started yeah. off as Standard Oil and then because they, they used the initials, they called themselves yeah. S-O-E-S-S-O. And then they spent ages and a huge computer program and a lot of research to work out a name that yeah. no one else could have and they turned the two S's into X's and became Exxon, <laughs> no, which no. means nothing. Uh, so I broke my vow last weekend and found myself in Ikea. Mm. Um, now, Ikea names of products are just quite fascinating, aren't they? Let, let me run... I bet I name run a couple of products mm. past you and you see if you can identify what the object is. A Trofast. What, what, what do you think a Trofast is? Okay. Are you looking that up? It's a storage combination okay, yeah. with boxes. Trofast? Or a Staraclint. Is a woven rug. No, 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 no. Trofast is the name of a racehorse that has been dropped from the <laughs> cock's plate. <laughs> no, I think it sounds more like some sort of device. I can't see a, an application for it that just accelerates the atrophying mm. process. Well, it goes on and on. A, a flissat. I think a, Joe Biden's on it. Joe Biden's on Trofast. A flissat is a children's table. Why don't they just call every product Allen Key? What's it called? Alan, right? <laughs> or you, of course, you can get That's the Veskin, which is a trolley. It's really uh, quite a difficult. Maybe this is the Swedish language for you, but I, I do find it a very difficult shop to know what you want to get. <laughs> Which they just show you the pictures instead of the boxes. The name for the table sounds more like a chair. It's got the word mm. "sat" in it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I find it amazing you can hear a chair in that word. Uh, maybe your Swedish is better than mine. <laughs> we we love watching the, those uh, those uh, Nordic noir oh, yeah. crime things on television. They do them much better than they do the furniture. I think <laughs> we've got some pretty good IKEA gear in this house. I think somewhere. Oh no, it hasn't fallen apart. That's basically my only qualification for good furniture these days. Speaking of things falling apart, it must have been some rage this week at the press council. Rage and disappointment because they ruled in my favour, gentlemen. I was cleared of brain crime or whatever I was accused of. Let's, let's go to their ruling. The press council considered whether its standards of practice was breached by an article published in the Daily Telegraph headed, Global Warming Activist Dies from Local Heating. On 25th of April 2022, the opinion piece, by me, commented on a New York Post article concerning the death of a climate activist 
that the New York Post reported had died after he set himself on fire outside the United States Supreme Court building. The opinion piece included excerpts from the New York Post article, including the incident happened at around 6.30pm on the plaza in front of the court building. He was airlifted to a local hospital (laughs) where he died. And they had a problem with that? No, they had a problem with my comments. Which were? In commenting on the activist's death, the death, the opinion piece said, let's hope he used carbon offsets. Airlifted? Man, this guy went out in a blaze of fossil fuel glory. <laughs> and he also used fossil fuel because solar would have taken too long. I think all those points are solid based in science. Anyway, they accepted... Reluctantly. The council notes that the reported death of the activist, which took place on Earth Day outside the Supreme Court, appears to have been a politically motivated act that sought to draw attention to climate change. In this context, the council considers there is significant public interest in allowing freedom of expression to comment on politically motivated acts, even if that commentary is expressed in provocative terms, as is the case here. Oh, yes. The, case, the council considers that to the extent the article did, so, did cause substantial offence or distress... It was justified in the public Who interest. Who did it cause? Accordingly, and this is the payoff line, the council finds no breach of general principle six. Congratulations, oh, Tim. Well done, you've cleared for Tim. Tim. Well done, Tim. It's nice that you've done that uh, to them. Well, I'm not sure if it is well done. What if my aim was to breach general principle six? What if I've got a real issue with general principle six? <laughs> but here's the point, you know, Tim. Say what you will about principles five and four. I've got nothing against them at all, but six can go to hell. Yes. I'll take you down, General Principle Six. Coming for you. <laughs> well, as usual, Tim, when they talk about offending somebody, they can never actually identify an actual person who's been offended. I take it that the guy himself wasn't offended, was he? The guy who torched himself. I don't think he was in a condition to be offended. Was he the one who rang in to complain from beyond the grave? You know, what's going on? <laughs> it was... Like it was someone in a country miles away decided to get really upset because of old this cinder fella, I guess we might call him, has decided to up and torch himself outside the Supreme Court. What he did is clearly mentally disturbed, so I suppose that's unfortunate, but I quite like the jokes nonetheless. (laughs) You'll be done next. General Principle 6 is coming after you. I've got terrible taste. Did I ever promise you good taste? Come on. Now, these people are now behaving so bizarrely. How can they not be treated as figures of fun? Absolutely. My favourite story with all these people gluing themselves to things was when they went into a car showroom in London and a couple of them glued themselves to the wall and the staff all left and didn't come back (laughs) until the next day. That's what you've got to do with these people. I mean, I don't think it serves anyone any good in the entire... There is a debate about suicide. I'm not sure it serves anyone well that we elevate suicide to such seriousness in a way. I think the more we make Mm, mm. suicide a a thing that we should be gravely... Okay, I'm not expressing this brilliantly, but if we elevate suicide to something we should all be deeply concerned about 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it should be the major thing on everyone's mind... Isn't that making suicide in some ways more attractive because it is so important that it does get so much attention, mm. that it is considered such a, 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 a monstrous issue? Well, here, uh, I don't like the fact that it's built here's up. Here's like the thing for you. Yeah, look, can I say you're making a good point? What it's called is mm. it's called the normalisation of suicide. That's that was that's the better word I was looking for. You should work in the word space. There's a movement yeah. which actually wants to normalise suicide, either as a protest thing or, and sadly, euthanasia wants to do this. They normalise suicide because they say, look, if you're feeling mm. really bad, then killing yourself is a perfectly good idea. So, yeah. And when you normalise suicide in society, yeah. 
young people yes. who are just distressed or going through yes. depression will kill themselves because suicide has been yes, normalised. It's actually I'm, a dangerous thing to maybe. do. When people kill themselves in a stupid way, they should be ridiculed. Cal, you're, you're a wordsmith. This word we have now, suicidization, I think it's correctly pronounced, isn't it? We, we, anyway, anybody on the right who writes what they think... and it, Suicidal ideation yeah, or something but like but that. Yeah, but this is what we're accused yep. of creating if we write something that they don't like. It's always, it's the excuse they'll go back to. You're you're increasing suicidisation in society. It was the big argument, of course, with the gay marriage debate, that anybody who didn't agree with gay marriage was therefore causing young people to suicide in some bizarre respect. But uh, But there are never any figures to support that, are there? Never. It's simply an ideological theory uh, with a particularly ugly neologism to name it. That's very well expressed. Now, just very quickly, Nick, very quickly, can we just go for a trifecta of annoying voices? Yes, please. This is our favourite here at the show, Kamala Harris. Let's see if we can get her revved up in a hurry. So, here's the thing. Who doesn't love a yellow school bus, right? Can you raise your hand if you love a yellow school bus, right? Just, there's something about... the And, and most of us, many of us, went to school on the yellow school bus, Right? And it's part of, it's part of our, our experience growing up. It's part of a, you know, a nostalgia and a memory of, of the excitement and joy of going to school to be One with One word review there, stoned. <laughs> she reminds me of someone I met years ago who was teaching preschool. And she said, when you spend your time with four and five-year-olds, your brain turns to porridge. So I've got a theory... <laughs> that Carmela must spend a lot of time teaching preschool because that's how she functions. If you love a, a yellow school bus, put your hand up. I mean, that is, this is preschool stuff. This, in, this is infantilising communication. You're onto something, Kel, because obviously the person she spends the most time with is Joe Biden. <laughs> we'll work that out. Now, Nick, Nick, you've got to head off somewhere, right? I have. I find myself in Melbourne, Jim, to host an evening with the great Jacinta Price. So that's going to be a fun evening, I'm sure. Oh, well done. I want to see how her proposal for an Asian voice to Parliament is going. That was brilliant. She, Terrific she idea. She put this up so that she could know <laughs> what Penny Wong's sort of people needed. You know, it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> please, uh, please uh, pass on my best wishes and greetings. And, um, Will do, guys. Good stuff, Nick. Well done. Can I just mention Doom Loop? Am I allowed to do that? Doom Loop, yes. Doom Loop. What's a uh, Doom, Doom Loop? Doom Loop is when someone uh, comes up with really gloomy, uh, uh, pessimistic, despairing sort of prophecies, and then lots of other people echo them and report them, and it comes back to the person who came up. So they go, they go even doomier and gloomier. It's like a feedback loop. Yep. where, you know, yep. the sound from the speaker leaks back to the microphone and ends up as a terrible circulating howl. A mm. doom loop happens because there's something called an information cascade or an availability cascade where suddenly everyone is saying the mm. same thing. It happened at the beginning of COVID where the health bureaucrats got up and said, this will be terrible, this is going to kill all of us, you have to stay in your houses 24 hours a day and we need a, you need to wear a face mask even when you're in the out, out of all those stupid things they said. And there were howling mobs of journalists saying, go tougher, go tougher, You've got to make it harder, it's terrible, this is doom, gloom, despair for the rest of... We've seen the same thing with climate. <clears throat> climate, the very fact that there are some kids crying because they think the human race is about to come, become just extinct is a doom loop 
that has got to the point where it is really damaging little kids like that. Mm. And I think Jim Chalmers has got us into a new doom loop. He's going to make the, He's going to talk down the Australian economy so badly that whatever's happening in the rest of the world, it will end up much worse here, even allowing for his mismanagement than it need, because everyone is so glum about it. Doom loops, of course, always promoted by left-wing Fruit Loops. So there you are, Doom Loop, my word of the week. Anyway, those who are listening, thanks for sticking with us despite two weeks of being off air. We are an aspirational weekly podcast only. Uh, But don't forget, nonetheless, to give us five stars. Trick those algorithms into thinking that people actually listen to this. Thank you. It's been been great to loop up with you guys. We'll get together for more anti-doom discussion next week. Thanks, guys. Every American and LBJ is with Australia all the way. Australia is the best place in the world to bring up a family. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. How good is Australia? (laughs) 